about what I'm about to share with you is that this is a uh, celebration, if you will, that's going on all across uh, the Christian spectrum in our world. And so if you are new with us, glad you're here. If you are uh, visiting, we're glad you're here. If you have been with us for a while, we're glad you're here. No matter where you are on the spectrum of Jesus or this church, uh, this is the season of Lent. We're midway through it right now. Uh, This kind of roughly eight-week buildup that we have that brings us to this celebration point of Jesus and uh, his resurrection. And the reason why I'm taking time each Sunday, just a few minutes each Sunday, to share this with you and to celebrate this with you is because for a great many Christians, Easter is like one, uh, it's sort of like the Super Bowl of our faith. And what happens is, is we, we ramp up to it, we get super excited that Sunday, and then kind of as quickly as we ramp up, we ramp off of it. And the beauty of Lent is that it's designed to help us understand that uh, following Jesus, loving Jesus, pursuing Jesus is not just a singular event. It might be rooted in a singular event, his death, burial, and resurrection. But for us, it is a lifelong celebration. And so with all that said, I want to call your attention to something. A great many of you already have these. You've taken them uh, from the table out in the foyer. You have downloaded them from our Facebook page or website. But I just want to encourage you, if you've not picked up a Lent guide yet, please do that. They're in print on the way out. Or you can grab it, like I said, in our digital media. This is a day-by-day guide that we put together with some help from uh, some friends we have in Orlando that allows you to really think through, pray, and process the season of Lent. Preparing your heart not just for one day, but kind of creating a new rhythm in your life. And so this is a beautiful guide that you'll find is, uh, it, it, it will go as deep as you want it to. It's as simple as asking you some days to bless a person, to be nice to somebody, to read a simple scripture verse. Or it can be the kind of thing where as God moves in your heart through this guide, you, you really take ownership in some of these challenges and see more meaningful fruit for them or through them. So keep that in mind. That season of Lent guide is on the table. And it's a super important thing for us right now as a body as we continually fix our eyes towards uh, the cross. And in a rather fitting way, this is kind of where our teaching has been over these past weeks. We, we have an interesting section in the book of Philippians that, that is driving us towards April 16th, which is our Easter celebration on site and certainly off site as we have our post-worship picnic at the uh, airport park. So I hope you are uh, perpetually preparing your hearts for what is about to happen. And I pray that our worship has helped that uh, this morning and that our teaching right now will just continue to stoke the fires of God's goodness and grace in your heart. And so today, we're continuing our study in the book of Philippians. And we're still in the third chapter of Philippians, which is an interesting chapter. I like to identify it as a bit of a, it's like a chapter within a book, you know, logically. But it's like a series within a series, almost, regarding what Paul writes to us. And for the past four or five weeks, we have actually spent all this time identifying the central Christian truth that Paul gives us. And we've corroborated his teaching with the words of Jesus that tells us, When a person's life is genuinely connected to Jesus, at some point it has to begin to bear the fruit of his spirit. What we spoke about over these last weeks, sort of a great connection point to what I'm trying to uh, communicate about Easter. It isn't a one-time gig. It's actually a lifelong rhythm. Our reflection and understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us should begin to shape and reshape us in all areas of life. What we identified as the fruit of the spirit. Because one of the evidences of true Christianity in a person's life is when they are regularly being transformed into the image of Jesus in a deep, lasting, and meaningful way. And so for the bulk of this chapter, Paul's taught us how how God brings about fruit in our lives. Remember, he's the ultimate fruit bringer, right? Ultimately, God is the one creating in us a newness. But Paul was also pretty explicit, as well as Jesus, that there are things we contribute to this. 
Meaning, it's not just like, you know, we put our faith on autopilot and God does it all. God is intimately involved in the process. He's the founder and the author of it, ultimately making all things happen. But we are called to work the field of our lives in very responsible ways. The idea of fruit, what God does in heaven and what we do under the heavens. And so today, Paul gives us another insight into how God brings about fruit in our lives. And it revolves around an understanding of what righteousness is and what we ultimately seek our righteousness in life from. That's what we're studying today. The new challenge I give you this week is to consider what it would mean to sow seeds, not to the flesh, obviously. We've talked about the problem there. But to sow seeds to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I got one amen on that. I want at least five by 1035, all right? Otherwise, I'm out of here. That's what's going to happen because I'm pretty hungry. So, contrary to this common attitude in modern Christianity... You cannot fully experience Jesus' grace, his power, his peace, his hope, and his joy, all the things Paul has previously written about, all the things that will be kind of, you know, concretely affirmed on the cross, unless you obey him. These two things go hand in hand. And it should be easy to see why this is true as we talk about Paul's command to seek righteousness in Jesus alone. You can know God and walk with God to a certain degree, uh, you know, if you're, I guess what I'm saying is you can love God in a general sense without really loving him in a meaningful or intimate sense. That's what I mean by walking in righteousness. It's what I mean by really seeking to press into who he is and to follow his ways. Something different happens when you start to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. When we do this, we sow to another spirit, another area of the spirit in our lives. Now, I want to be direct here because what we're going to talk about today is somewhat of a tense subject. And you know if you've been with us for a while that when difficult subjects come up in Scripture, our philosophy is just to, with love, truth, and grace, grab the bull by the horns and address them. And so this is one of those places where there's a bit of a tension in what I'm going to talk about because it involves and includes a very controversial idea or truth according to Scripture. It's the word sin. Now, The reason this is controversial for a lot of people is because we just don't want to hear the reality of it. That there is a brokenness that plagues humanity that oftentimes drives deeds and actions that are really not good for anybody. That's one way to look at sin. And I guess, truthfully, you have to look at it from that angle. We'll talk about that this morning. You have to foundationally understand that. But there's a great freedom connected to this word. If you can kind of bear with me for a little bit, what you'll find is that sin and the cross where we're migrating, is there's a beauty in this idea too. Because what we see is the power of sin today. We'll talk about that. And then the beauty of Jesus' righteousness to help us overcome it. There's a freedom connected to when you properly understand sin and who Jesus is. It's sort of like you can have the shackles removed from your life. A passage like this shows us that God's given us everything we need to conquer sin with his righteousness. And that is the point today. I'll just give you the primer. We're going to be talking about righteousness and trying to sort out the difference between our own righteousness, what we know as self-righteousness, or Jesus' righteousness, which is the righteousness that's the fuel of the kingdom of God. And this leads me to the first truth I want to share with you this morning. True to form, we'll just jump right in. When we speak about righteousness, Christ's righteousness, and how it works in our lives, you'll never, you and I will never appreciate the gift of Jesus' righteousness in your life until you understand the problem of sin. You can't appreciate the gift unless you understand what the gift is meant to remedy, right? And so in our culture, and at times even in the church, this word sin is a greatly misunderstood word. It's a, it's a word that is abused at times. It lacks depth and clarity. Sometimes we just ignore it. But the bottom line is, if you want my, my opinion on this, and I think it's a good one, this is usually the case, this distortion, because the seriousness of sin has not been conveyed properly. Now, 
on the surface level, that statement might seem a little bit off. Maybe you're here thinking like, well, the experiences that I've had with people who believe that sin is real is that they seem to take it too seriously. Uh, they're always telling me that sin is everywhere and that the goal of the Christian faith is to avoid all of those negative or bad behaviors that the Bible calls sin. Maybe you're saying something like the people that I've met that really believe there is such a thing as sin, or maybe at times we, we harbor this kind of animosity in our lives. They're somewhat abrasive and sometimes they might even be a little mean. It's like they believe that they own this moral high ground in life and they enjoy reminding all of us that are not on it with them, that we're not on it with them. And so what happens is there's a, there's a lack of depth and understanding of the seriousness and some of the humility that sin, sin should breed in our life, which we'll talk about here momentarily. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, in my first year at seminary in New Orleans, I uh, went to a church. I was invited to go to this church where there was this kind of large it wasn't a conference, but it was like a big teaching environment where a couple of people were preaching to students about what we should look for in our future spouses. It was like one of those like, hey, want to get married? Then show up here. We'll give you all the secrets, like the 29 ways to have the best marriage on earth. And so I went there. I wasn't even married yet. And I thought, this is great. You know, I'll, I'll go learn about what it means to be married and how to figure this stuff out, which I sorted out like at year three. You can ask Corinne. Our marriage is like square and good to go. That conference was amazing for me. Right. So the crux of this dude's talk was the one, the one that I heard, the main like thing, was... Uh, was this simple idea, and it's a very true idea. Let me start by saying this. He was warning us that allowing sin into your relationships would destroy them, any relationship that mattered to you. Now, that's, fun, that's absolutely true, without question. And at the time, I was uh, very interested in this subject because I, I was sort of new to the faith. I moved away to school. I was a believer two years, and I just was like soaking up everything, trying to learn as much as I could. So we had this incredible theological dialogue connected to this very practical reality of what it meant to be married, a healthy marriage. And... I have to admit, uh, it was one of my first doses of what we know today as moralism. And the sermon turned out to be a very lengthy list of don't do these things. And that's really what the 50-minute talk was. It was this litany of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I had to admit that I got a little fatigued about midway through. It just was, an, it was like such a great, a great thing, marriage in life. And it was plagued with all of this kind of negativity and discouragement. And I had friends that I was with who felt the same way. We were all kind of waiting for like a form of encouragement. Some, some like, you know, but, but there is hope. That never happened. I mean, it was like the stick got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in fact, it got worse. And uh, in personal conversation, I've shared this with you, uh, several of you, multiple times. There was a statement, a climactic statement that ended the talk. It was like, sort of like how I give a response at the end of worship. This is sort of what, this is not sort of, this is exactly what this guy said to us. And he said, uh, you know, when it comes to godly dating or marriage, he said, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't date girls who do. And that was it. Like, I guess that was the cardinal piece of wisdom that we were supposed to take from there. Like, they don't smoke, they don't chew, and I don't either. Okay, so excellent. So now, in case you're wondering, like, I, I don't smoke and I don't chew, and I didn't even marry a woman who do. My wife, uh, my wife does not. Uh, <clears throat> she had a very, very terrible dip in habit when we got uh, together, but this sermon changed us, and she doesn't do it anymore. But it, it was interesting, right? So uh, I'm just kidding about that. Maybe, right? So... Uh, <clears throat> All of these habits, right, they, they can be pretty dangerous and they can likely lead to some health problems. But the point of what I'm saying now is not to develop a bias against those things because we've all got challenges in life, right? The point of this is to say that that was, that was sort of the cherry on the top of the Sunday that highlighted the problem here. 
I remember hearing that talk and wondering about just the con- its whole validity. It was problematic to me because it seemed to be saying at every point that having a good relationship with another person, having a godly relationship with another person was based on cleaning up the outside of your life. It was based on completely managing everything you do on the outside. And there is some truth to this. I'm not denying this. I'll affirm it here in a moment. But where it failed was it just did not address the root of sin in our heart. It never actually taught us or, or instructed us or challenged us to think about the stuff that drives all the crazy stuff in our lives. It was sort of like you could take the 50 minutes and collapse it into one sentence, saying something like, you know, get moral and everything's going to work out because that's godliness. But that's sort of, that's not always true. And here's the, the sort of a paradox here that we'll talk about this morning. It's pretty true if you read scripture that if you believe that sin is just managing ex- an external set of behaviors in your life, it's likely going to destroy your life in Jesus. And that's why I say it's, you're not taking it seriously enough. There's a, there's a whole root system that has to be addressed when we talk about behavior in life. And so let me be super clear here, just so that it's on the record. Uh, the Bible does say there are certain behaviors, lots of them, and actions that God calls sin. Undeniable. We're not even going to dispute that. And we have said, any anytime we talk about this word in this room, there are we say this kind of countlessly, that a true Christian, as we grow in Jesus, this is what Paul has been teaching us, your morality has to be reshaped. You have to start... For example, the fruit of the Spirit. There are places where our generosity and our sacrifice and our care for people and our desire for justice and, and making things right, they, God has to start changing that in your life. That's one of the evidences of what it means to be a believer. So I'm not undermining the external. More, I'm just trying to balance the seesaw here. Because we make a real mistake when we only see sin as an external action and not a deep-seated condition of the heart that drives those actions. In fact, we would say confidently that sin is both a state of the heart and it's a state of the heart that shapes what we do at times, right? In the same way, you could, on a positive sense, you could say our love for Jesus is sort of a posture of the heart, right? There's an internal substance that then begins to drive what we do. And so if you understand sin this way, then the same principle applies in how you understand God's righteousness in your life. Your understanding of sin is going to shape your understanding of righteousness, Because on the other side of the spectrum, righteous actions, which really here I'm trying to identify self-righteous actions, they're much more than just external actions. What you do for God and how you serve him is much more than just something you do. It is something you do, but there's a root system connected to that too. The validation of those things in God's eyes comes when they are properly rooted in a Christ-centered heart attitude. That's the key to all this, is being rooted in Jesus and understanding how that shapes who you are and what you do. And so seeing sin as behavior management was a real problem. It still is today in a lot of circles. Thankfully, not here. But the reason why we have talks like this is so that it doesn't ever become a problem here. And it's something that Jesus regularly addressed throughout his whole teaching ministry. The best example of this, at least in my opinion, is Matthew 23, 27. It'll be behind me. Now, here's a perfect example of how misunderstanding sin distorts your understanding of righteousness. He's talking to the Pharisees who on the outside were really good people. Like they, they were solid regarding what they did. They were honorable and upstanding. They seemed to always do the right thing. It wasn't necessarily what they were doing that was the problem. It was why they were doing what they were doing that created the problem. And so Jesus says to them, you know, woe to you. That's like an old world way of warning them. He says, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And in this world, to call a Pharisee unclean was like one of the 
greatest insults you could give them because they prided themselves in, in, in being clean before God. They, pride, they had this incredible proudness, if you will, this pride that was rooted in their understanding of self-righteousness. They thought that they were just cherished by God because of what they did. And they missed the great truth of the grace of Jesus. And that is that God loves them because of who they are in his son. And so in that verse, Jesus tells them, listen, guys, it doesn't matter how polished the exterior of your life appears if the interior of your heart is still corrupted. It's actually a very dangerous place to be because you've tricked yourself into believing this is what Paul says at the front end of Philippians 3, 7 through 9, what we read this morning. You've tricked yourself into believing that your works, like the Apostle Paul, are your righteousness. The reason he contrasts everything he has done with everything Jesus has done is to prove this point to us. He's saying, I did all these things. We talked about them weeks ago. I was a you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a kingpin in the tribes of Israel. I was the guy. Yet, all of that is like garbage compared to the righteousness that I've now found in Jesus. He is pitting righteousness versus righteousness on a scale. One is self-righteousness, what I do that makes God love me, and what Jesus has done that ensures God will always love me. That's the, that's the two sides of the scale he addresses here. And so the Pharisee is like pre, pre-Jesus Paul. It's the prior life before Christ where they think what they do is why they matter. And that's sin according to this, this righteousness teaching. And so seeing sin as simply managing the behaviors of your life is sort of like this old adage. And I've used it here before because I think it's a very visual, it's a very important visual illustration. It's this kind of adage we have that says, you know, seeing a very serious problem in life as just the tip of an iceberg. And that phrase is used to describe a situation where what you see happening is just somewhat of a snapshot of what is actually happening. With an iceberg, you can only see the part of the iceberg that is above the water. The point of that adage is that there's a huge chunk of ice under the water dictating where the tip goes. That what is under the water is actually what matters most here. Because if that can be redirected, the tip goes in a different direction. And the same is true when we understand what road we're walking on when it comes to righteousness. If you want to change the direction of an iceberg, you'd be foolish to stand at the top and drive it from the tip. You would, that would do nothing. It's impossible to move an iceberg like that. The same is true with sin in your heart. Although you can spend your days trying to polish the exterior of your life, Scripture says that's management and that's a problem. It's behavior management. And it will fail you eventually because it's dependent. Here's the problem. It's dependent on your own righteousness. It's dependent on how hard you can push the tip. It's a futile exercise. And it also proves the point, for those of us that have ever got it rutted in this, it proves the point of what I'm saying now, is that there are lots of times in life where we are not taking sin seriously enough because bottom line here is we think we can handle it without Jesus. And if that were the case, God would have put us on the cross. We wouldn't even have an Easter. That's not the case. God says you need Jesus for this, so you should rest in him and rely on him for it. Now, to make sure we never do this, push the tip, it would serve us well to define sin. There are lots of places where you can get good definitions for sin, but my favorite definition, I think the most accurate one, because it's very pastoral, meaning it's very accessible to us, is a textbook definition of sin in the Christian faith. And it really talks about this idea of missing God's mark. And it's written by a gentleman named Millard Erickson, a really famous guy in Christian theology. Lots of great stuff to read if you ever want to you know, kind of pursue this. But he says in one of his books, sin is any act... Any attitude or disposition, by disposition, that means it's a disposition of the heart. It's a posture of the heart. You know, I can, I can be generous with you. I can give you money. Look at a loan shark, right? 
generous in order to take advantage of you. That's a problem. It's, a, it's an external deed that seems sort of okay, but it's connected to an incredibly problematic hard attitude. It's a disposition also that fails to completely fulfill or measure up to the standards of God's righteousness. And it may involve an actual transgression of God's law or failure to live up to his norms. And that's an important statement because what he's saying here is it could involve you doing something, but even if you're not doing something, sin is still a disposition of the heart. It's still a problem. You don't even have to do anything to have it in you. It's in us. And then he goes on to say it's failure to live up to God's norms is to miss the mark. And so if you think of sin as sort of like God being this expert archer, right? An archer... His sole goal is to put an arrow through a bullseye. This is the analogy that Erickson is trying to show us. His, the goal of the arch is to put the arrow in the, in the center of the bullseye. And this is sort of how God has designed the world, the world. God is an expert archer who has designed our world and our lives to function in a very specific way. There is, if you will, a bullseye that he desires from all of us in the way we love him, treat each other, and care for our world. And God has no problem hitting that mark. However, the same is not always true for us. And the origin story of this comes from the Garden of Eden. This is, this is a, a classic example of this. Humanity uh, starts out sort of hitting God's mark. There's like this season where it's good in the early days. But then they immediately start shooting their arrows in different places. They choose to put their love and trust in something that was not God as if it was God. And I've said this a million times in here before. All sin is rooted in seeking something from something that is not God with the hopes that it will fulfill you like God will. And the moral of the story of the garden is knowledge. What they say is, we can get something from the tree that we cannot get from God. And there goes the arrow in the wrong direction. They miss the mark. Sin enters the world. And at that point, it destroys the relationship they have with each other and with God. It all changes. That's why we can confidently say the root of the first sin, like the root of all sin, is much more than just an action. It is the tip of the iceberg that shows when given the chance, people will choose to live their lives apart from God. We're sort of wired to a certain degree to want to do that. And Jesus rewires us for the rest of our days to think differently. And this is why a, a good person, you know, if you ever, ever, I kind of joked last week about good people dying young. This is a philosophical problem for people because there can actually be really good people by a different standard in the world that can still be sinful because there's this unresolved disposition in their heart. Because sin is much more than a deed. It's a rebellious condition of the heart against God. And good deeds can come out of a person with a rebellious heart against God. There's a deeper issue Jesus deals with when it comes to righteousness. This is an important talk, much like the ones that will follow, because we're kind of doing like a little pre-cross theology here for the next weeks. This is a big one. The reason we should celebrate the cross is because of a truth like this. The rebellion in our hearts God deals with on the cross. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. Having a proper understanding of sin will help you to have a better understanding of righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. And to sort out that, be- between, uh, that from self-righteousness. But once you truly understand the nature of sin, it should then drive you to rest in Jesus' righteousness. There is something pretty amazing that happens here. Yes, it deals with the, the problem of sin, but it also starts dealing with your actions. And a great one, here's, here's one of those places where, I'll just say this before I read Philippians 3. Sometimes the sin in the heart can actually shape anxiety. Sometimes a lack of trust in God, looking to something to satisfy us, can make us like lose our heads, right? So sin has no boundary in how it can cause us to act. And sometimes it's in ways that are very detrimental to us. 
But what you'll find is when you rest in the righteousness of Jesus, rest actually is possible. There is a proper balance between understanding God's responsibility and ours in the process. And this is what Paul is telling us in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. I want to reread it. He says, but whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This guy lives his life in a pressure cooker. And for you type A's in this room, I speak as one of them, life can be like a pressure cooker. It's always another hill to conquer or another accomplishment to achieve. What happens is, is you can get so focused on doing stuff that, that it creates this perpetual tension in your life. And in doing good things, you're kind of stressed out. This is his life. He's nothing but accomplishments. And he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my, law, uh, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So more than everything he was doing, he's, he's now saying is, is Jesus. He's much more than them. In fact, he equates Jesus, I consider them garbage. And this is actually a pretty strong word in the Greek. It's one we can't even translate properly for you guys. It's, it's fecal matter is what he says here. It's a Greek word, skubala. I just cursed in Greek in the church. Sorry. That's what it is, right? That's what he's saying here. It's like dung in comparison to who Jesus is. And then he goes on to say, that, and I do this, I, I, this, this distinction now, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, all the things, right? But that which is through faith in Christ. And then this, here's the money saver, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He takes all that he's done, good stuff, most of it anyways. And then he says, but real righteousness comes on the basis of me believing in what we're about to celebrate in a month. So here Paul tells us the only way to really deal with sin in our lives is to find our righteousness in Jesus. And if you're a doer, this is going to haunt you because you're going to think like, well, are you saying I can't do anything? And I'm saying sort of, no, you can't. You can do some things, but ultimately the doing is done on God's part. So you might remember a few years ago, we did the study in the book of Ephesians, right? And uh, Paul talks very explicitly about righteousness as well as other places. But in Ephesians, he refers to Jesus' righteousness as a breastplate a soldier must wear. And this is significant. Why? A breastplate was a significant piece of armor. It's sort of like a combat vest in a soldier's world today. It protects all the vital organs. And in a, in a combat vest or in, in a breastplate, the most important organ that that thing protects is, is a heart. It's protecting very important things. But the most important thing is right here. The vital organ that matters most is the heart. And so what that analogy teaches is, us is that physically speaking, if you strike a warrior in the heart, you take the warrior out of the fight. Spiritually speaking, Paul uses this analogy to remind us of the same truth, that our hearts are the control center of our spiritual lives. I've said this here before. Our hearts dictate our values, our priorities, our emotions, and our morality. Out of them, Jesus says, all things come. The words just reflect what's in the heart, and the heart is who you are. They are the literal center of who we are as people. And because of this, we've got to be super careful about what we expose our hearts to. Because the heart is truly like a lump of clay, and it is easily molded. Simply put, if you want to find a fullness of life in Jesus, you have to sow to the Spirit. This is where we've been. And if you, want to, if you start sowing to the Spirit, what you'll find is you'll have a greater aptitude to stand against schemes and lies in life, what we talked about last week. The lies of the enemy, the lies of the world, in the very positive sense that we talked about, the things that are against God. At some point, the more you sow to the Spirit, the more you rest in Jesus' righteousness, the more you'll have an ability to discern where your time, your effort, and your energies need to be and where you need to stay away from. If you want to free your heart from sin, anxiety, tension, whatever it is, the, these things that easily entangle us, Hebrews says, and lead us astray from God, which is not a fruit of the Spirit, 
That's the fruit of the flesh. Holy Spirit moves you to Jesus. The flesh pulls you away from Jesus, right? So what we want to do is move towards Jesus. If we want this, we have to protect our hearts by, according to Paul, putting on this piece of armor. And this piece of armor is understanding what God's righteousness in Jesus is for us. So this leads us to a rather obvious question. You know, you're saying, like, you've talked a lot about sin today. What does God's righteousness in our lives look like? Well, let's talk about it. There are many good ways to define God's righteousness. I can give you another textbook definition, but there's a colloquial saying we use in the Christian faith that I think is very important. One of the best ways is to understand being presentable to God. That's what Jesus' righteousness does for us, is it takes somebody, something that at one point in life is not presentable to God because of sin, the mark is missed, but Jesus' grace says, I'm going to make you presentable to my Father. So think of it like this. If you are dating or have dated, or maybe you're married and you did date at some point, unless you're Amish and you didn't do that, you know, let's just say you had a typical dating season in your life. There's probably this time in your life where on your first date, your first dates, you know, you take that a little more seriously. Most of us do anyways, right? You try to put your best foot forward. That's how that usually goes. You try to drop a couple of pounds. You put on your best clothes. You get a fresh haircut, you know? If you did it in the 80s, you probably put on a lot of cologne and wore a big gold chain, right? We all have epochs of how we did this. Rock the mullet maybe at some point, you know? (laughs) You did all that stuff. You tried to keep it, like, presentable. And there's a reason driving this. There's a point in your life where... You're saying, you know, uh, you might not be saying it like this, but you know there, there is a set of expectations here. And when you're starting to date somebody, you don't exactly know what they are. And so it's very common from the counseling side of the fence. This is true in both dating and even in the honeymoon years of marriage where couples are over, overly presentable. Sometimes they almost put on a bit of a false front because they're trying to like hit every mark in order to not lose the relationship. There is some standard expectation that there's a lot of ambiguity in, in the early days. And so I notice there's oftentimes challenges connected to this. Because at some point, if you set up this false precept about being a certain type of person for another person, and then once you, you, know, you get the girl or get the guy, you stop being that person, there's some conflict there. In other words, there's a lack of desire to be presentable at that point. And so what happens here is, in the early days of a relationship, people often work very hard to cover up their faults. And it can be a real pressured time in a relationship, and even in a marriage. And so this analogy of being made presentable to someone is, is a good example, or a great example, of how God sees us. Because remember, our understanding of God and His love for us is a, it's a relationship. That's what it is. It's how He interacts with us and how He desires us to interact with Him. God has relational standards and expectations, and he never compromises them. And scripture is clear, they are much higher than any dating relationship you and I have ever had or been in. In fact, they're so high, you and I can never live up to them. To attempt to will crush and harden you or turn you into what Jesus was rebuking in Matthew. It will cause you to practice the performance-driven religion of the Pharisee. At some point, you'll just overperform your way into God's heart, only to realize you cannot perform your way into God's heart. Self-righteousness. And so unlike dating, with God, you can't, you can't cover up your faults. Here's the, the misnomer in this. He knows it all. He sees all. You can't polish the exterior of your life and think it will make God love you. And there's something very right about that because of the problem of sin. The hard truth here, and this is a hard truth depending on where you are with Jesus. The hard truth here is that without Jesus, the reality of the human condition is that we are not presentable to God. Now, if you're stuck on that side of the fence, you're going to be offended right now. But if you have experienced grace, you're going to wait for the comma. You're going to hope I don't do what I did in that, I got in that talk 20 years ago about dating. 
The comma after that statement is, the beauty of Jesus' gospel says you don't have to be. That is not why God loves you. God loves you because he loves you. And he died for you because he loves you. And that love, that impetus, is what drives the way you start to live your life. It should anyways. Now, the clearest biblical definition we have of God's righteousness and why we need it is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'll read it. It will be behind me. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For you old-timers, you'll know you used to sing songs about the double cure. That's what this is. Jesus takes our lack of righteousness, our sin, and he puts in us his righteousness. That's what it means when when, uh, Paul tells us that he who had no sin became sin for us. The double cure. He took it and gave it to us. And this verse teaches us, I mean explicitly, that we're not able to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness. The Bible in other places equates this to living like, it's, it's sort of like covering yourself up with dirty rags. That's why God in his infinite grace made a way for us to be righteous. And he made Jesus to, who had no sin to be sin for us. The reason Jesus is our savior, the reason why we sing this and proclaim this, is because he ultimately became our substitute. This is what the cross teaches us. He went up on that thing for us. He paid the penalty for us. He took our place on it so that in him we'd become presentable to God once again. The cross is the greatest example we have of why self-righteousness is a problem. Because if it wasn't a problem, we wouldn't be talking about the cross. When we trust in Jesus, this is what Paul is saying, not only are our sins placed on him, but much, much more, he says, his righteousness is given to us. The value and status of his righteous life is given to us. God sees Jesus in us. And the only way to be truthful about the fact that we are sinners, the only way to overcome the kind of crushing weight that guilt plays in our lives, that shame can play in our lives, especially if if you're serving the God of sin, is to let Jesus protect our hearts with his righteousness. You have to mount that breastplate. So while we should aim to live righteous lives, I'm not disputing that, denying it, or telling you to the contrary. We must know our righteous deeds alone are not enough to please God. This is the moral of of Paul's story. I did all this, but it wasn't enough. When we trust Jesus like this and for this, we're properly made presentable to God. And the beauty of this is that we no longer live under the false pressure of having to prove ourselves to anyone or anything in this world. Because Jesus says you are now wholly presentable to God, and nobody can take that away from you. This is why the book of Philippians, one of the dominant themes is is joy in life. When you recognize this, you recognize your joy comes from within you. It's not a circumstance that, cha- that can change you. Your joy is in you. It, your joy defines your circumstances. That's actually what, what Jesus' righteousness does in us. It gives us the rudder to navigate life. It doesn't give life the rudder to navigate us. And in this case, it removes us from this, this pressure cooker of faith or religion. And when we understand righteousness like this, it starts to breed peace in the heart. That's how you can know if you're resting in Jesus' righteousness. Just go, to the, go after the equal sign in this spiritual equation. Am I at peace in my life? When you understand righteousness like this, it breeds peace in our hearts. And it also allows us to identify where we are pursuing unhealthy forms of acceptance in other places. It allows us to share the same truth with our brothers in Jesus and with those who are far from God. You want to know why evangelism matters in the Christian church, why our mission is one of our values? Because other people need to know this. Other people are noosed by anxiety and tension. They're looking to the wrong tree in life. And God is trying to say, hey, if you'll just shoot your arrow this way, I'm going to open you up to a world you probably couldn't even believe could exist. Now, if you're paying attention, this is kind of how we'll wrap up. If you're paying attention, what you'll see very easily is that every person is struggling to find righteousness in this life. 
if you understand righteousness from the from the definition of presentable and not a particular Christian theology, what's happening here is they're looking to be presentable. Every person is trying to be presentable to something or someone else in life. They're trying to put a best foot forward. Most people are anyways. In the first year of restoration, I shared this story with you, and I'm going to reshare it because I don't have a better one to share with you. I want to share with you how this came to a reality in my life. For me, one of the first realizations I had about this, and keep in mind when I say this, this is Monday morning quarterbacking here, okay? I was on the path to finding meaning in my life like this. I was looking for righteousness, presentability in areas that I thought would matter in life. Uh, this, this came to a head for me uh, when I was 14. My journey here began in a basement in Brooklyn. And I didn't even know it then, but in God's grace, I can see it now. This is the goodness of God. He'll redeem even the crazy stuff in your past to help you see. Let me explain. That year, just before Thanksgiving, a person I consider to be a good friend of mine, I still know him to this day, started spreading a rumor about my family and some of my friends uh, and, and other friends that we were very poor, which is sort of true. We were working poor. But he started telling this, this group of peers, like my, my crew, that we were so poor that summer, my mom planned to cook a turkey in a, in a microwave because she couldn't afford to turn on our oven. Now, in, in our little upbringing, like jest and making fun of each other, that stuff was all like legit. That was a normal thing. We had pretty thick skin. But there were these incremental times where somebody would say something that got through the armor and it would be a problem. And it usually ended in some type of a fist fight. And so this was going on. And while it was very true that all of my friends were much better off than us, the turkey comment wasn't true. And this is what kind of irked my craw is that that was actually not factual. We could afford to turn the oven on. But it made me super angry in a really unusual way. And so I did what I do best. I confronted him as soon as I saw him. And I just said, why are you saying this stuff? Because it's not even true. And in a very calloused way, he just continued to say it amongst like 10 other guys. And it was in front of all my other friends. And it's funny. It got very embarrassing and hurtful. I, I, I can still feel the emotions today. And as I listened to his words, something happened. You know, I've kind of joked in the past about my journey with anger. But th these are some of the origin points. The switch got thrown. And for a, a, a few brief moments, all I, all I, I just lost control of my faculties. And I was just punching him. That's what happened. Like I went from asking him a question uh, to punching him. That's what ended up happening. Now listen, I'm not saying this. Like I'm not saying now today if you are righteous, lack of righteousness in Jesus means go punch people. I'm not encouraging that. Uh, I'm not proud of that, nor would I would encourage it. But I can tell you that at that stage in life, I was very young, uh, very lost. And I was at the beginning of becoming very angry. And I'm not trying to share this for effect either. I'm just trying to point out something that you think about this. If we were to put us all in a room or uh, we go to lunch afterwards and I would say, tell you a story about somebody making fun of a turkey. You'd say, oh, that's silly. You wouldn't say like, oh, if I heard that, I'd just punch a guy. Right. That would, that's not your that's not your sane response. Right. But for because it's not your nerve. Right. But that day it was my nerve. What happened that day is that the turkey was not the issue. There was an issue beneath that issue. There was something that pushed the button, right? And the point I want to make now is we've all got the button. We've all got a presentable nerve in our lives. We've all got a place where if poked or prodded properly, it will cause some kind of reaction that is likely going to sow to the flesh. And so looking back at my life, it became clear. And again, I'm saying looking back. I mean, this is through people investing in me and praying and processing. Looking back, it starts to become clear to me that through that situation and others like it, that as I was coming into my, my manhood, I was relentlessly crying out for righteousness. Not the one Jesus was trying to give me, but for presentability. I wanted to be presentable. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be viewed a certain way. I wanted to be affirmed, which are, which are things most of us want in life. 
And whenever I was denied that, God-given need of the human heart, meant to be filled by Jesus, you act out. I would act out. And it was much later in life after coming to faith in Christ that I was shown and then had to have God show me directly that you don't have to feel that way. You don't have to run that rat race in life. What I started to see was, uh, and I, I say this a lot, just not because I don't have anything better to say because I think it's pretty, pretty powerful, is that it doesn't matter what the world says about us. Now, keep in mind, when I say this, I'm not saying to deny the advice of those who love you. But what I am saying is that there are going to be times in your life where, those, where there are voices that, that are going to be very strong and they don't need to matter. The voice that needs to matter most is the one that is Jesus's. That's the discernment piece we talked about last week. And what happens is you'll learn that you can deal with this stuff. You can deal with stuff even if somebody says you're nobody or somebody says you're a somebody. You, you don't get uh, arrogant in that or you know, self-deprecating when they deny who you are in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we are all perfectly presentable. And that is never going to change because Jesus' love and grace for you and I never changes. It is permanent and fixed. When we receive it, it's forever. It doesn't go away. So listen, if you're looking, you'll see people every day are turning to all kinds of things to feel presentable. None of us escapes the fruit of the flesh because it's one of the hard wirings of our heart. The key is which way your wires are running. In God's grace, he makes us aware of it and he gives us his righteousness to stand firm against it. And although I doubt a turkey slur for you will be your thing, every one of us has a presentability nerve that when struck will rattle us to the core of our hearts. Your ability to unrattle is going to dictate how much you have embraced this idea, this truth of Jesus' righteousness. And I give you just a couple of closing examples. For some of us, or some of you, it's going to be when you seek an ultimate validation from another person, like a spouse or a parent. This is very common in parental paradigms. There's an expectation placed on a kid that is unhealthy, and it hurts the relationship. And then if we don't break the cycle, we place it on our kids, and it hurts another relationship, right? It's, it's, we're looking to the wrong things for presentability. I can never live up to my parents, dot, 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 dot. Neither your heart or the, the heart of the, the loved ones we have are meant to live under the pressure of that expectation. And what happens here is you damage the relationship. You either are receiving the damage or passing it on if you don't get to the righteousness of Jesus. For those of you under 30, or 35, really, I guess, in the millennial generation, interesting, right? While my generation was steeped in rebellion, that's what we were known for. The exes, you know, were constantly complaining about everything and trying to change stuff. This, this idea of meaningful and substantive relationship is one of the hallmarks of the millennial. So many of you will have your acceptance nerve hit when you feel rejected because of your insatiable desire and consequently, at times, unrealistic expectations that you might be placing on peers. It's somewhat ironic. This is a true fact. Sociologists have cited, like every generation has its challenges, but every sociologist has identified that in a generation that is the most digitally connected ever, socially connected through media, at times they feel the least satisfied relationally. There's a bit of a conundrum in that, right? If relationship matters most to you, that's going to be your nerve. For others, it's found in success in life. Maybe it's the workplace, the promotion, uh, raising our children, our expectations of, you know, when we put 20 years into that, they will become this. Or our social status. This is the person who seeks righteousness and accolade and success to cover up the shame in their life. They overcompensate by constantly reminding the world they've made it. They're saying, like, I'm presentable. I've done it. I've done it. And then they are wrecked when they have not done it. (laughs) What happens there is there's this place in life when you realize you can't do it all. And if you're a driven person, you probably have more goals in life than you'll even accomplish. And so what happens then is you stop feeling like you're making it and you're wrecked. You get knocked off the throne of your unrighteousness. I mean, this is why we have a keeping up with the Joneses complex in our country. 
That's a perfect example of the presentability nerve. And when it comes to those of us in Jesus, right, the people this teaching was written to, I want to leave us with a thought to ponder, a closing warning to meditate on, that in every church, there are two kinds of righteousness. And every, every Christian can be relegated into one of these two camps. People sitting in the pews are going to try to kind of, they're going to try to carry righteousness in one of two ways. This is what I would like you to meditate upon in our response time. The first group, I like to call the I got it crowd, or we will call the I got it crowd. They say things like, you know, I know what uh, Christianity is. I've read the Bible a lot. I have righteousness down. I study the Bible a lot. I knew you were going to say 2 Corinthians 5 about righteousness when you were talking about this. Uh, I've got faith. I've had it for a long time. I remembered being taught this when I was seven and teaching it when I was nine. You know, this is a, this type of person. I learned this stuff a very long time ago. Uh, and, and, and the thing here is that this person says, like, I have got this nailed down. I get the righteousness thing. But what this person is really saying is I'm going to put together my own righteousness and give it to God. That's what makes me presentable. I will say that the I got it crowd is probably the I don't get it crowd. And this is true with some of the most simple but profound truths in the Christian faith. When we say we got this stuff, it's usually a good indication that we might be gotting it a little less than we thought, right? That's what's happening there. Because a truth like this should drive us into greater levels of humility. And truly getting it creates a different type of outward expression. So there's this crowd. They think they have the righteousness of Jesus, This is the Pharisee, but they actually have their own righteousness and they miss God. Then there are the people who hear Paul's words in a different way. That comma but thing really rocks their world. They know Christianity is not you putting together a righteousness resume and handing it to God. They've probably tried that and realized that it does not satisfy. But they've come to this great place in their faith where they recognize that Jesus, through God, has put his righteousness in you. And these are two utterly different faiths. They're two different roads One goes directly to the cross. One takes a long excursion around it. And who knows where it ends up? Two different roads. The first makes you proud and arrogant because it's self-righteousness. And it means you're far from God because you're trusting in your own righteousness to deal with sin. The second camp, however, makes you a genuine Christian because you've truly trusted in Jesus' righteousness for your salvation. And once you learn to trust in Jesus, to know him and and our Father, that trust gene tends to grow. When you've tasted the goodness of trusting, you're going to likely want to trust more, and you'll be well on the path to dwelling in the permanency and the grace and the truth of Jesus' righteousness. And so this morning, I leave you with a simple question. It is the title of the sermon. What are you seeking your righteousness in? Do you understand what righteousness and sin, uh, what these words mean and the effect they have on life? What are you looking to in life for righteousness? And I guess I'll leave you with what I say every week. What is Jesus saying to you and, and what will you do about it? Where will, This morning, analyze where your head is turned, where your arrows are flying, and make sure that it is towards Jesus Christ. That is why we are in the season of Lent. That is why we will celebrate the cross. And I pray that in these next moments we have of solitude, that this would truly give you a space to reflect on and ponder that, uh, that God loves you immensely. And a talk like this hopefully has done nothing less but bolster that reality in your life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for, um, for the Apostle Paul who, again, selflessly puts his own life on an altar for us to examine. This is a guy who, who walked both roads and found one far superior. And so our prayer right now, God, is that 
as we contemplate righteousness. And I mean, the, the cross is the, the distribution agent of the righteousness of God. You, you gave us the cross and put your son on it to make truths like this real. I pray, Lord, that, that you would give us a, a, an immeasurable wisdom, a discernment this morning to meditate on this particular area of our lives. I pray you would illuminate the season of Lent in our hearts right now and let us focus on this truth this day. And may it make your cross much bigger in our lives this morning. I pray, Lord, wherever we find ourselves far from you or close to you, that you would do what you do best, and that is meet us with your hand of love, goodness, and grace, and help us, no matter where we are, to take a next step with you. Whatever that may be, I am confident you know what that is in our lives, and we pray now that we would be open enough to hear that from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.